The reading this morning is by um, a woman named Warson Shire, and she is an Ethiopian, Ethiopian refugee living in London. It's called Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, the boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one would leave home unless home chased you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought about doing, and so when you did, you carried the anthem under your breath, waiting until the airport toilet to tear up the passport and swallow each mouthful of paper, making it clear that you would not be going back. You have to understand, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck unless the miles traveled meant something more than journey? You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one would choose to crawl under fences be beaten until your shadow leaves you, raped, then drowned, forced to the bottom of the boat because you are darker, be sold, starved, shot at the border like a sick animal. Be pitied, lose your name, lose your family, make a refugee camp a home for a year or two or 10, stripped and searched, find prison everywhere. And if you survive, you are greeted on the other side with go home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country drive milk, dark with their hands out, smell strange, savage. Look what they've done to their own countries. What will they do to ours? The dirty looks in the street, softer than a limb torn off, the indignity of everyday life more tender than 14 men who look like your father between your legs, insults easier to swallow than rubble, than your child's body in pieces. For now, forget about pride. Your survival is more important. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home tells you to leave what you could not leave behind, even if it was human. No one leaves home until home is a damp voice in your ear saying, leave, run now. I said it last week and I'll say it again because we don't hear it enough. When I look out at you, I want you to know that I love you. And it is out of love that I remind us week after week that this is our world and beautiful and terrible things will happen. And we are asked to be not afraid because this is what we are about. We hold hope for the person next to you when it's hard to find and we plant seeds that will one day grow 
You saw them all here up front. There's a brand new baby that was right there and she's out. We are prophets of a future that we can't see yet. We can't do everything, but we can do something. So forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. And maybe you'll say it with me now. That is how the light gets in. This week we'll find us heading home for Thanksgiving, wherever and however and whomever home is for you. A holiday my colleague Forrest Church, blesses life now gone, once referred to as our country's most sacred secular holiday. Almost like an American Seder, he said. For the ways that we share a meal and give thanks for the life that we did not have to earn and the grace that we do not have to buy. Forrest's prescription for gratitude reminding us in three parts, you might remember Want what you have, do what you can, and be who you are. Which is as good of religious instruction as any, even as we acknowledge that this holiday, like everything in our country's history, like everything in our personal history, is complicated. And at least on Thursday, never quite as innocent as the Macy Day Parade or Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving episode might have us believe. Because remember, the Thanksgiving story tells of a time when it was people who looked like I do. I was the immigrant. Me. Somebody who looks like me. And it was people who looked like me who were dependent on those, in those first winters, on the brown people already here. This was their home. Even as they, the pilgrims, wanted to push those brown people out and away. This holiday, this Thanksgiving holiday, that did not become a holiday until Lincoln proclaimed it so in the middle of the Civil War in October of 1862, looking, he said, to bring together a divided nation. And I'm quoting now. These are his words. Listen. To offer tender care for all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and to fervently implore the intercession of the almighty hand, he said, to heal our wounds of a nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace and harmony and tranquility and union, he said. I declare the fourth Thursday in November to be Thanksgiving. It kind of feels like he's writing them for, for now, doesn't it? which is why I felt so drawn to them and drawn also to the words there at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Who has been there to see them? Just raise your hand. That preach, you know, they preach a universalist message. 
I put them for us at the top of the order of service, and I wonder if you would read them with me. Let us say them together. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's a sermon, isn't it? I was so drawn to these words, Lincoln's and Liberty's, because whereas once they might have seen, you know, like a simple historical message worthy of a Sunday night, Church is Over PBS episode, or a Doris Kearns Goodwin book on my nightstand, now in these times they seem so prescient, so necessary, don't they? As we wend our way home this week, wherever and whomever and however home is for you, in a country that over these last weeks and months, and especially over these last few days, has revealed to you and to me just how wounded we actually are. On our arm, we are cut open with class resentments. We are cut open between folks who live in the country and folks who live in the city. We are cut open with unabashed, unabashed racism. We are cut open with economic disparity. We are cut open with scapegoating the immigrant leaving home to find a home. We are cut open with women and girls talked about as objects to grab. We are cut open. So cut up we are. And the scab, the scab has been ripped off. The sores, they've been broken open. And now we see, my friends, we see how fully, with our own eyes, how fully wounded we are. We see it. Heather reminded me this week of a word etymology I did not know. Can you believe it? <laughs> the word apocalypse from the Greek means to uncover. It means to reveal. Which is to say that regardless of who you voted for, we are living in apocalyptic times, uncovered times, I mean, wounds revealed times, cuts uncovered times, sores broken open times. And as we find our way home this week, wherever and however and whomever home is for you, and we give grace for this life that we did not have to earn, but that we do have to live as though our lives are worth dying for, which is something else that Forrest told us. What I'm wondering here is, this is what I'm wondering. How are we supposed to heal? When we roll up a sleeve and we see how deep the cuts are, how are we supposed to heal? When we've kept the wounds hidden for so long, how are we supposed to heal? How do we heal our home? How do we make our communities a home for healing? Now, I think it was Wednesday this week, after a long day of ministry that I feel so privileged to share with you. Because remember my job description, 
my job description is not about being a superhero of holy availability. (laughs) It's instead to help ministry happen between you. To help it happen. Because you may not know this, but we are all ordained now. Every single one of us in this room, you have around your necks a stole, a garment which was meant to welcome the stranger and to wipe the dust and the dirt from people's faces. That's why I wear this. And you all have one. You are all ordained now. You are all preaching with your lives more than your lips, the good news and the healing word that we all so desperately need to hear. But this week, as Karen and I, after a long day of ministry and me sharing ministry with you, Karen and I found a half an hour to walk the dog down to beautiful Winthrop Lake near our house. And she and I talked of how we wanted to respond as parents and people to the news happening around us. We talked about the letters that many of you know were received on the doorstep of a Natick home, I think it was last Sunday night or Monday, telling the owner there, you should go up to Google and type in Natick letters and you can see the actual letter saying, go home blacks, there's zero tolerance for you people here, we have taken our country back. This is our second warning, they said, the letter said. Karen and I walking down beautiful Winthrop Lake, wondering how do we respond to that? And then my mom calling me from St. Louis to say how some high school boys at my alma mater, Christian Brothers College High School, were on a bus. And they told two black girls to go sit at the back of the bus that they got on. And my calling my sister Anna, adopted from Vietnam for her birthday, she coming to this home because her home, as the poem says, was the mouth of a shark. There was a bullet and a gun. She coming here in 1974 because there was a war there in her home, just a baby she coming, not crying at all because no one could answer her cry, she coming, and me saying to her, Anna, I just want to ask if everything is okay you with your brown skin, you the immigrant, the American citizen, I want to ask you, because I'm the big brother, has anyone said anything to you? Me thinking, I'll just get on a plane and I will go there. And I'll wear my safety pin and I'll wear my button and I will stand with you. And she says, so far so good. Scary though, she says. And Karen Karen saying to herself as much as to me as the dog bounded into mounds of golden leaves. She says, how people who look like we do will probably be just fine. She says, it's those in the margins and on the shadows and on the shores who are feeling so frightened now. She says, I feel like the scab has been ripped off, you said. I feel like we've been asleep, she said, she now preaching to the preacher, she the true preacher, 
And so we went home and did a few concrete things. She booking her trip to D.C. in January and taking Ella, 13 years old, to the Million Women March the day after the inauguration. And then we trying to save for college, we setting aside money every month to give to reproductive rights, to environmental protection, to GLBT protection, to refugee support, to the NAACP. We finding some money somewhere to do that. And perhaps most importantly, we walking back and promising to engage Emerson, now 16, and Ella, 13. Ella, who was a baby in a little carriage like that that you held in your arms. She born a week after my first Sunday with you. And it's now growing up in this world that we share. We telling them, promising to tell them to put your screens away and talk to them about racism that is not somewhere else that is here to talk to them about class divisions, to talk about going up to New Hampshire and seeing all the signs change that I talked about last week. And why is that, guys? And Emerson, do you know how your sister faces different barriers than you because she is a girl? And how they have so much privilege they don't notice, which is the definition of privilege, that you don't realize you have it and so much more to put the screens away and to keep talking to our teenagers despite the eye rolls, despite the aren't we done yet shoulder shrug, to push past it because we have a responsibility, because as parents we need to love them more than we want them to like us. Because here's the thing, this sermon in one sentence for me and for you. I cannot begin to preach that I know how to help heal the uncovered wounds. I don't know. But what I do know is this. The first step towards healing begins when we can no longer pretend. That I know. Bandages need to come off. We need to open our eyes. Attention needs to be paid. Love needs to be practiced and not a hallmark love. I mean a hallmark love that says, you know, let's just all just get along. I mean a fierce love because love can be fierce. Love that is fierce enough to stand shoulder to shoulder and skin to sin, skin against every voice that says, go home, foreigner. Back to the bus, black girl. Get straight, transgender teen. Take off the scarf, Muslim woman. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard, which is why you come here. Hard for me, hard for you, it's why we come here. And you might be surprised when I tell you that in these recent days, oddly, I have felt more energized, more focused, more clear-eyed, more rooted. I'm up here rooted in this place that has been here for so long. At any other time in my 14 years with you, 
Why might that be? I think I know. Because this work of healing and not pretending is what Unitarian Universalism and this church was made for. It is why we exist. It's why we're here. It's why we're a living tradition and not some museum on the top of a hill. It's why we're a movement and not a building. Will you help me? Our work is to bind up the brokenhearted. Will you help me? And our work is to welcome the tired and the poor, the huddled masses, the teeming masses, and the hurting. Will you help me? Our work is to lift our lamps beside our doors and keep the lights on to make sure this community is strong for the people who need it to be, which is you and which is me. Will you help me? Our work is to proclaim freedom for all the captives. Will you help me? Our work is to comfort those who mourn. Will you help me? Our work is to build a home for attention, for not pretending, for strength, for resilience. To build a home for healing. Will you help me? Thank you. Because however we feel, life calls us on. We cannot despair. There's too much work to do. Life calls us on.